This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Greetings, Gothamites. Welcome to Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose, where the only pictures are those formed in the imagination. I'm Lane, and I have my guest co-host with me again today, Professor Alan Howdy. How are you doing? Great to be back here. Very good. Good. I don't nice know when this you. is going to be released, but we're recording it in the start of summer. Mm-hmm. And that's always some of the best times of year for us professor folk. Yeah, it's a, just a normal time of year for me, but I do get Fridays. I'm able to take some vacation days on Fridays, so uh, short weeks. I, I could use some of those. Tell us where we can hear your dulcet tones, aside from guesting on this podcast. Well, mostly here. That's the most important thing. <laughs> That's what Lane... You already have the job. You don't have to butter me up. What? Okay. Wait a you're, minute. You're already good. You're already good. The 20 bucks was all that was needed. I still want a good review. Uh, <laughs> most of our work is over at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Such mm-hmm. shows as the Quarterbin Podcast, mm-hmm. Short Excellent. Box Showcase, Doom Speak. Nice. Comics, reading journal, stuff like that. And uh, we have a sort of a side project called Dorkness to Light about mm-hmm. religious, spiritual, theological content in pop culture. That is very cool. Nice. Nice. What, what types of things do you cover there? Like any type of pop culture? We have. We have covered uh, some music. We have covered mm-hmm. the Daredevil TV show. We've covered the comic book character of the Spectre. In the mm-hmm. story Kingdom Come, just nice. as some examples. We are working on our next part of The Forensic Files of Batman by Mr. Doug Minch. And uh, we're working on the next three chapters today. They're not numbered, but the next three files or chapters are called Spile Striations, Blowback, and Cause of Death. Those will be the three that we're covering today. Pretty interesting cases, very gun-related, so they work together nicely. I kind of like how uh, these chapters that we cover tend to stick with themes, so it's easy for us to lump them together. Yeah, shall we dig into the first one, Spiral Striations? Yes. Spiral Striations. Excerpt from Bruce Wayne's Diary. Guns give cowards an easy way to kill. If I could possibly avoid it, I wouldn't read or learn or even think about guns. I hate the things. I wish they'd all vaporize right now, burning every hand holding them. But that's not going to happen. Guns are multiplying, not disappearing. Zillions of them all over the world. Up to a hundred thousand in Gotham alone. And because guns are what cowardly killers use more than anything else, I will keep reading about them. I'll learn everything I can about guns. And I'll use the knowledge every way possible. Guns are the enemy. And knowing the enemy is half the battle. End of rant. 
time for business. Now, I'm, I can't remember. Now, I've read a lot of Batman comics, seen all the movies. Is there something about guns and something like in his origin? Because that's something you just never see. I, I feel like he loves them so much that he has trouble finding pockets for them in, all, in his cape. In all his like, pouches? Yeah, he was having trouble getting his cape to flare out because of the weight of the guns that he carried. Mm-hmm. So I might be thinking of the Punisher, though. Now, you know, they're pretty much the same guy. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So there we have our two icons uh, for this chapter. And I, I can't remember if it, if it was this chapter or one of the other two. The icon was so dark. I had trouble seeing what it was. I had to like think, I think that's what this is, and then go back and match it up. Because black on dark gray is really hard to make out if the print is like not perfect. There are some comic books that like to print dark blue text in black backgrounds for effect. And I am I I suppose at a stage in life where I was, let's say, less experienced with life, mm-hmm. my eyeballs may have been able to <laughs> handle that, but kind of like digest-sized comics. Mm-hmm. Some, of, some of that dark-on-dark dark print, like yeah. these icons, uh-huh. can be a little tricky. A little, little tricky. A little <laughs> tricky. But the two that we have are handgun used and ballistics evidence, which was pretty uh, unsurprising considering the title. It's another excerpt from Bruce Wayne's diary. And again, I'm assuming it's young Bruce Wayne because we have words like zillions. (laughs) 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 And uh, obviously he detests guns, but because of the lifestyle he is getting into, he recognizes the need to understand them. Good on him. He doesn't like it, but he's like, you know what? I'm going to have to deal with it. I'm dealing in crime. I'm going to have to know what I can know, even though I don't want to touch any. There is a lesson there that sometimes you have to read about and learn about things that don't appeal to you. Is this what you tell your students at the beginning of every semester? Beginning of every class, beginning (laughs) of every paragraph, beginning (laughs) of every sentence. You don't like this, but you're going to, you're going to take it. (laughs) (laughs) So he writes that the forensic techs who deal with guns are called you know, the ballistics department, but they actually don't like that because ballistics specifically describes the flight path of projectiles, in this case, bullets. And they would prefer to be called like a firearms identification. I don't know if that's true or not. I I didn't look into it. Not about what ballistics means, but if people who work in ballistics, if they would prefer to be called something else, I don't know. But a lot of the stuff in this book so far has been pretty solid, so I wouldn't be surprised. So, but what I'm getting at is that a lot of those iPhone games that I play Mm -hmm. are actually ballistics training because they're about firing a bow and arrow or a slingshot or a catapult at just the right angle and force to Mm -hmm. knock down some angry birds or whatever it would, whatever it would be. So you could moonlight as a forensics ballistics expert i'm just thinking about putting that on my business card Mm -hmm. yeah i think i could teach a class in ballistics now yeah i think you can (laughs) (laughs) but he writes but determining flight paths is only a small part of what gun techs do and a lot of times they don't even bother with it this i didn't know the flight path is usually obvious and mostly irrelevant anyway because it rarely helps to nail the perpetrator 
which is interesting. Yeah, you do see it in some visual media sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be either, you know yarn or something like that, you know, strung from one place to another to get a visual idea of right. visual idea of where the gun was fired from. But maybe that's a little more old fashioned, and uh, yeah. and and has has just hung around because of the the visual nature of it in terms mm-hmm. of media. I mean, yeah, I guess it's true because um, I think the most I have seen line of sight really being used are in the Arkham games. <laughs> like, uh, he follows along a, a trajectory to try to find the point of origin of the shot. Evidently, Doug Mensch did not write on that game. Uh, so probably the most important thing that these specific forensic texts do is match bullets to guns. And if you can prove that the bullet taken out of a murder victim's body was fired by a prime suspect's gun and no other gun in existence... You've gone a long way towards solving the crime and obtaining conviction. And uh, this chapter gets pretty deep into you know, some of the ways they use to match that gun. Mm-hmm. And this is done by looking at the ballistic fingerprint, which are the marks etched into every bullet fired by any gun. And I, I did learn something because I knew about rifling and that no two guns were ever the same. And I was like, well, how... If, like, one is made right after the other, how are they not the same? But I actually learned in this chapter that the rifling is done with a stiff bristle brush. And that so those bristles are never, like, exactly in the same place every time. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And and when you can get as detailed as the most powerful microscopes, even those literal microscopic differences can, can be valuable. He writes about the flaws and bumps and barbs inside of the gun barrels due to the rifling. Um, did you ever read the Richard Sharp series or watch? It's a series of books written by a guy whose name I can't remember. But Sean Bean plays the uh, oh, that's right. Plays the character. I, I, I'm familiar with right. it. Right, and I went through um, a Sharp series kick about uh, ten or fifteen years ago, and it takes place during the Napoleonic Wars. And I remember his regiment was called like Sharps, the Sharps Rifles or something like that because they had this newer technology of using rifles instead of just smoothbore muskets. And a lot of people were against using it because it took them longer to load the bullets because they had to kind of pack down past that rifling. It slowed them up when they were loading, but the trade-off was having a much more, much more accurate shot when they did shoot. Two things there. One is that's a never-ending trade-off between effectiveness and efficiency. Mm-hmm. And two, if I were to say Bernard Cornwell, would I be close? Yes. Bernard Cornwall or Cornwell, one of the two. I get him and Patricia Cornwell confused. If only I had a computer. Because I think one's a Cornwall and one's a Cornwell. If only I had a computer like in my hand here. Let's see. Ooh. Bernard, Bernard Cornwell, Bernard Cornwell. So, yes. Mystery solved. We're done. Case closed. Batman would be proud. (laughs) Though my favorite Napoleonic era series is the Captain Aubrey, Dr. Madden series by Patrick O'Brien. That is not correct. The answer is Horatio Hornblower. I see a four-star. Oh, that is a... sorry. So, this is going to be a problem. Again, about that... uh, about that evaluation and continued employment. <laughs> okay. It's not looking so. good. Not looking Are you good. sending me to the associate dean's office? <laughs> so I'm in trouble. Going back to Sean Bean, or Richard Sharp, 
rifling. This rifling w- was starting to be used in the early 1800s, and it wasn't until the mid-1850s that it was used uh, much more commonplace. Um, so I already talked about the, the metal brush. So the markings are never identical, even if one gun is made immediately after the other. And they create diagonal wrapped marks on the bullet as it spins through the barrel. And it creates a mark as unique as a fingerprint. Now, one thing I was thinking about that, that unique as a fingerprint mm-hmm. comment, which is in here a couple of times in, in this section and in other sections. Obviously, fingerprints are an excellent tool in crime solving and forensics just by themselves. But also, I think they serve this weird function as being a great analogy to lots of other things. Right. Each gun has its ballistic fingerprint. Voices have fingerprints. We mm-hmm. use the phrase DNA fingerprints. And, you know, it's kind of weird. I-, I wonder if we didn't have actual literal fingerprints. It'd be hard to hold on to things, but. <laughs> that too. <laughs> but we'd be missing out on this great analogy. Yeah. For so many other things. And I've heard of cases being solved by the shape of someone's ear because ear shapes are usually very unique. So, hmm, interesting. There you go. They talk about lands and grooves. The grooves are actually, you know, what's bored, what's carved out of the bullet. The lands are the untouched parts. So once you have a fingerprinted bullet, then you can test it and compare it to the suspected gun. And I've I've seen, you know, YouTube videos of these forensic guys. They'll have this big vat of gel and they'll shoot a bullet into it and then with re- retrieve it. And then they can test the striations and see if it matches the fragments that they have. And, and I think it may have been fingerprints that we were talking about prior chat, where in addition to matching to a crime scene, you can they can also match to each other. So you mm-hmm. can have bullets, even if you can't match two bullets, even if you can't match a bullet to a gun, you can match it to another, right. to another crime. Saying like this has been fired from the same gun. Right. So you, you, you can link those cases, so work on two cases at once. Right. And it says if if the marks in the test bullet don't match the crime scene bullet exactly, you've got the wrong gun. Yep. So it's very precise. I was surprised how early on this technique was first used. And it says it was used it was demonstrated in a courtroom in 1902 presided over by Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes. Holmes, Professor Allen. It keeps circling back. (laughs) Comparison can be complicated when a bullet has been distorted or fragmented by impact. And I had always wondered about this as well. But apparently a surprisingly small fragment with, you know, microscopes they have today, that that can contain enough of the overall pattern to make identification possible. So I think it moves on now. Yeah, so it that was about the the rifling. There are a couple other tests that can be done on guns. Uh, one is the marks that are left on the ejected cartridge that are made by the firing pin and the ejector mechanism, which is virtually unique. Not as much of a slam dunk as the striations on the bullet, but it's a pretty good bet that if the firing pin marks and the uh, ejector mechanism, if those marks line up, you're probably in the right neighborhood. Yeah, it, but it sounded like this example was not used in in the book, but I imagine if that's the only piece of evidence you have, it might be tough in a court, if yeah. that's the only thing. Because mm-hmm. you know that other side is going to really work that reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. 
Another one is called Knurled Cannular, and this is another mark created by the loading mechanism, which is at least slightly different for every gun. So it sounds like he's working through the ones that are least reliable. And um, the perfect match for lands and grooves is all that's really needed, but if the team can make these other matches as well, it can really seal the deal for the juries. The more evidence you can show them, the more you'll erase their doubts. And we kind of mentioned that an episode or two ago about if you get enough circumstantial evidence, that kind of, uh, it has to break the threshold of reasonable doubt. Right, yeah, all, all of your evidence has a quality to it. So you're mm-hmm. balancing the quality and the quantity. Yes. Some forensic tests can go too far with exaggerated claims that can backfire. And this is one I hadn't heard about. Um, uh-huh. Neutron activation analysis, which supposedly determines the atomic comparison of a bullet and links them to bullets of the same manufacturer, like those in a partially used ammo box found in the suspect's possession but it's problematic bruce writes that there can be a a bigger difference in the composition between two sample pieces of the same bullet so that sounds like it would not be very helpful if you can test a single bullet and get different results Mm -hmm. and he mentioned the paraffin test which Mm -hmm. is again one i'm familiar with just from older novels Right, But it sounds like even by the early 2000s when this book was written, that it had gone out of out of fashion. Yeah, and I was surprised at that because you always see them on TV because we all know that TV crime shows are very accurate. They always test for gunshot residue. So I was confused, but it sounds like there is an updated test for gunshot residue. This paraffin test, the reason that was discredited is because... The nitrates that are lifted can also be found in newspaper ink, cosmetics, cigarettes, agricultural products, and even urine. So you can get a lot of false positives. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite parts in this chapter, Bruce writes, Note to self, never smoke while reading the news in the john, and always wash your hands. (laughs) There's a visual I didn't know I didn't need. See, that's young Bruce Wayne humor. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, I, I just got that mental image in my head now. The only pictures are those formed in the imagination, and unfortunately, sometimes you can't turn the pages on those on those pictures. <laughs> so yeah, so that paraffin test was obsolete, but the newer one, the primer gunshot residue test for barium, lead, and antimony, which is less, much less common in other innocent substances. No more false positives. So... We talked about the bullet and what you can do with that. But sometimes the bullet is never found. And this is when the wound in the victim can be viewed for help, namely the entrance wound. He writes, The exit wound tells you almost nothing, and even the entrance wound gives you little more than the bullet's probable caliber. Which is interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but it makes sense. It explains uh, the, the exit wound especially because, unfortunately, between the entrance and the exit, the bullet can do some bouncing around and Mm -hmm. it will not come out as straight and clear as it went in. Yeah, not good. I'm going to read the last couple paragraphs here. A gunshot is nothing more nor less than a violent explosion slamming a hot piece of metal into soft flesh. And to me, that makes the gun humanity's all-time worst invention. A knife doesn't have to stab a heart, not when it can also cut bread. 
and a hammer works just as well building a house as it does crushing a skull. But other than maiming or killing, what else can a gun do? It has no constructive purpose whatsoever. Guns were invented to gush blood, period. I hate the cold, dark, heavy things, and I hate the cowards who use them. The two together are death, and stopping death is the only thing I want to live for. Pretty intense. Mm-mm-mm. Now, Lane, did you know that very early in Batman's history, like even before Robin showed up, like first year, 18 months, something like that, there are some stories where Batman did in fact carry a gun. I I did. I saw that in the um, like the 1939 and the early 1940s. Right. Um, he had a gun and he drove around sometimes in a red convertible. <laughs> I think some of that is probably a reference to the shadow who had debuted in the pulps a few years before Batman and is known for, in addition to clouding men's minds of having a pair of guns with him at all times. The shadow knows. So I wonder if that's the idea. Possibly. Uh, you know, that they making that comparison, of course, Batman's going to going to carry guns. And then but that was it was it was dismissed pretty quickly. Right. And it's not surprising that he started out because this is the day of, of gangster movies and you right. know, Bogart and Cagney and all that. And the, you see these tough guys in fedoras, gumshoes and carrying guns. Mm-hmm. So but certainly the- within that within that genre, within that that era, it certainly is a a bold choice to stop carrying a gun. Right. Especially when you know you're getting into some criminal underworld stuff and it's not really clear here because we know the 66 batman definitely didn't have any body armor mm-hmm. and they, he doesn't really talk much about it here so i don't know some of the newer batman costumes he's uh he's pretty well armored as long as no one shoots him in the face mm. and poor robin like running around in hot pants i mean it won't take much for someone to get him in the femoral artery and and on the uh, dark, mean streets of Gotham, which one of those two do you think it's easier to see? Uh, hello, Robin. I mean, bait. I mean, Robin. I mean, <laughs> distraction. I mean. Maybe that's why he went through so many. <laughs> oh, Lane, you're mean. You're mean. <laughs> Wear this bright costume and your glow-in-the-dark, pale, rich boy legs and go stand over there. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Rest in Peace Theatre is proud to present That Time Professor Allen Reads Blowback. Case File 0139 Year 2, Month 1, Day 23 from the private files of the Batman. Blowback. More careful than the common murderer, professional assassins are typically more difficult to incriminate on the basis of circumstantial evidence. The caution they tend to exercise in their profession, however, is informed by personal experience rather than esoteric principles of physics. Herewith, Brief notes on the case just concluded, wherein such principles shaped one hitman's downfall. When a major figure in Gotham's underworld found himself under felony indictment, 
Murderer for Hire, Albert Runcible, was contracted to eliminate the key prosecution witness. Shot once through the head at close range, witness became victim, leaving the upcoming trial in jeopardy. Murder occurred in the victim's bed, its commission cold-blooded and methodical. A pillow pressed over the victim's face was used to muffle the sound of the gun, thereby silencing the witness with a nearly noiseless shot. Passing through the pillow to enter the victim's head, the bullet had then exited to embed in the mattress. It was dug out and removed from the scene by the murderer, thus convinced that no weapon could be tied to the crime by ballistics comparison or anything else. Runcible disposed of the bullet, but retained his gun. If and when professional confidence transforms to arrogance, however, it can also become a fatal mistake. Runcible was already suspected in a string of contract killings, linked to the man under indictment as well as to other organized crime elements. But mere suspicion is never enough, and no case could be convincingly made against Runcible. The previous murders remained unsolved, and this murder looked to be no different. Until I saw the pillow and remembered the phenomenon of blowback. As he had several times in the past, Police Commissioner James Gordon ordered Runcible's arrest on suspicion of murder with a warrant to search his premises. According to arresting officer Harvey Bullock, Runcible was all-cocky cooperation. Recently employed as a bodyguard, he freely produced his handgun, along with the permit covering it. Yes, it had been recently fired, he admitted, but only on the target range. And while Runcible also surrendered a box of ammunition, the gun itself was the only thing I needed. The assassin was obviously correct in assuming he had nothing to fear from the science of ballistics. With no bullet in evidence, there was no pattern of lands and grooves available for comparison with the rifling of his gun's barrel. Runcible was wrong, however, to assume that his weapon could not be tied to the crime scene in any way. Rather than a bullet that had come out of the gun, the link would be something found inside the gun's barrel. When a firearm is discharged, the resulting rapid expansion of high-pressure gases sucks outside material, if only dust in the air, into the gun's barrel. Even as the bullet is blown out, in other words, other matter is blown back into the bullet's wake and into the gun. After Gordon gave me Runcible's gun, I extracted minute fragments from the interior of its barrel. Confirming what I hoped to find, gross microscopic examination showed the material to be tiny bits of feather. Mass spectrometry further established them as the same type of feather, eiderdown, as found in the sound-muffling bullet hole pillow left at the murder scene. And finally... DNA typing conclusively linked the gun barrel's feather bits to more than a dozen of the pillow feathers, all sharing identical genetic markers. Feather bits and pillow feathers had come from the same individual bird to the exclusion of all other birds on Earth. With Albert Runcible's goose thus cooked, 
he was offered a reduced plea, albeit one still carrying a life sentence. And on the advice of counsel, he agreed to cooperate. Having eliminated the prosecution's best chance for conviction in the original trial, the assassin will now take his victim's place on the witness stand. Runcible will, in fact, exert a different form of blowback by testifying against the very crime boss who hired him, now charged with an additional felony count. One crime thus became the motive for another, and murder turned one case into two. Both now closed. Oh, thank you for reading that, Professor. Mm-hmm. It gives the, the listeners a chance to hear a voice other than my own when I Oof, and read. <laughs> no, wait, what? Hmm? What? Do you want to talk a little bit about the sure. blowback section? Is there? Yeah, I'm just finding my yeah. notes for that one. And uh, let's see here. Let's let's talk a bit about this little section because we're still in the. Uh, oh, uh, I do want to mention the icons that are used for this chapter. We have handgun used and microscopic pathology. Mm-hmm. At first, when there was a mention of prof- professional assassin, my mind went straight to like Deadshot or someone like that. In in Batman's world, there's a whole league of them. Yeah, get Deadshot, Deathstroke, and uh, but no, this guy is that uh, Albert Runcible. I think this is just a random guy. I don't think he shows up in Batman lore anywhere. Yeah, that that's my impression. Yeah. And it was interesting because we read so much about ballistics and striations that I thought that would come into play here. But we get a new thing. We get this blowback. I, I'm not saying I'm an expert in rules or mysteries, but I've read my fair share. Uh-huh. And I have to say, I don't, think I've ever, I don't think I've ever seen one where the feathers inside the pillow were the primary clue. So right. big props to Doug Mensch for coming up with that. Uh, a, a, as an example, you know, maybe this really did happen once. And mm-hmm. as an author, you know, he, he discovered that or you know, filed that away somewhere or just came up with it or, or whatever the source was. But I thought it was a really excellent example. Yeah, I I thought it was fairly genius. I haven't published anything yet. Hopefully one day in the future I haven't finished things. But uh, when I read a, come across something that really strikes me. I kind of file it away. And uh, one of the books I'm working on, uh, because I can't work on just one, you know, ADHD, that's probably why I never finish anything. <laughs> but one of them is a in the diesel punk genre, um, sci-fi, World War II. And one of the characters had grown up in the Dust Bowl or experienced the Dust Bowl when, when they were growing up. And when I was doing research on the Dust Bowl, I came across something like a first-person account that I've never come across anywhere else. And it was that when there was enough dust in the air, it would create static electricity. And this person looked out the window, and the horns on the cattle were sparking from the static. Nice. And I thought, that that is... That's a detail. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm going to use that somewhere. But it's just getting those first-person accounts, and just like that bit of impactful information can do so much for world building. And so, yeah, I wonder if he came across something like this or something similar that he was able to kind of, you know, do a lateral shift from instead of this and this, I'm going to make it 
the goose feathers from this pillow. Talked about this on a couple of podcasts uh, over on Relatively Geeky, but I did National Novel Writing Month a few times in the early 2000s. And Mm -hmm. my specialty is unfinished novels. Yes. I'm really good at it. I'm so good at unfinished novels. (laughs) One of these days. I did like the pun that Bruce makes here about this person's goose being cooked. And has he been around the Robins too much? <laughs> I was going to say, with Batman, you take your jokes where you can find them. Yes. There aren't many of them. There are not many of them whatsoever. And we got appearances from Gordon and Bullock. Yeah, I do like me some Gordon and Bullock. Yeah, but I, thought, I thought that was a nice, good, short little uh, uh, mystery and solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I first really got to know Bullock in the Gotham TV series. And then I've watched a couple episodes of the animated series. I haven't gotten... I, I want to sit down and, and binge it, but I just, I'm waiting for the right time. And the Bullock in Gotham and the Bullock in the animated series are so different. <laughs> it's, it's hard for me to kind of think of them as the same character, but... True. Do you know much about Bullock? Like, is he like? Does he have a redeeming arc, or is he just kind of like a bubbling idiot sometimes? He's one of the few cops that Gordon trusts. Ooh, okay. So there's that. That says a lot, actually. More, more or less trusts him, and the I, to me, the best stories are the ones with him and Montoya mm-hmm. as, as partners. And I, I recently read one. It, it focused on Gordon. It may have been Gordon of Gotham that miniseries. Where, eh, or may have been simply called GCPD, uh, where for a little while they broke up as partners. Mm. Harvey yeah. had gone too far, and Montoya needed a new needed a new partner. And then over the and, and Bullock got a new partner. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the miniseries, their two cases, of course, converged. And happy ending, they ended up back together as partners. Okay, because yeah, a little bit I've seen of him, it seems like he is. A decent cop if sometimes he tries to make himself look better than he is. Mm-hmm. But the fact that Gordon trusts him, you know, he could, it, it's fine to be a mediocre cop as long as you're not a corrupt cop. Mm-hmm. So. I think the best word is gruff. Yeah. He's a gruff gentleman. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I hope I get to know him a bit better as a, as my wanderings through Gotham continue. (laughs) Cause of death. Case file number 0021. Year 1. Month 4. Day 2. From the Journal of Alfred Pennyworth. I can only hope the master does not object to my presumption in recounting his most recent case. His own private accounts are the inspiration, of course, although I hardly wish to steal his thunder. Still in all, given this dreadful joke-up business currently terrorizing the city, the master's preoccupation spares little time for anything else, let alone reliving a lesser case now closed, whereas my own time is less restricted. Whether in brief notes or longer narrative, and whether eventually shared in sanitized form with others or forever confined to the master's private review, I see enormous value in the documentation of each of his intriguing and informative cases. Giving the urgent pursuit now and away, Previous knowledge risks loss, and since I have already been invited to contribute my own insights, if not wholly new accounts, 
I shall here stretch the invitation and endeavor to record the salient details of a curious mystery solved by rather ingenious means. So our final section for this uh, episode is Cause of Death, which was written by Alfred Pennyworth. And uh, yeah, it's from the, from the journals of Alfred Pennyworth. And even if you missed that little heading there, it would be evident really quickly that this is being written by Alfred Pennyworth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, you know he, he says, well, you know, that, that Joker fella... Right. Just keeping Batman too busy. And it's interesting because I, I think you said the next section start getting into Joker. So here we just get the briefest mention of him. Mm-hmm. And the way he says it, this dreadful Joker business sounds like this is a new thing, that they don't know who this is or don't know anything about him. That that would be my impression from that. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So. But I, I, in theory or in, in – I, I, I just love the idea that this is Alfred writing this journal because if Batman is Sherlock Holmes, then this really does make Alfred Dr. Watson. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are lots of versions of Alfred over the years, but often he's a military veteran, as right. John Watson was. Of course, they're both English. Alfred does have some medical skills and experience. Which is coming as- handy. As well, uh, uh, similar to Dr. Watson. Now, one main difference would be Alfred's housekeeping and cooking skills. Yeah. And that sort of makes him a little bit of Mrs. Hudson as well. (laughs) Yeah. And and we saw some of Alfred's, you know, first aid skills coming in handy in the first chapter with uh, when Bruce got a whole snoot full of the, the fear toxin, the fear gas. Right. And he basically told Alfred, okay, stand by with a spike of adrenaline just in case. That that was a, a fun, because I remember <laughs> Alfred was just saying, like, I'm here, it's fine, you're fine, I'm here. But then as soon as Bruce was recovered, Alfred was like, are you, are you proud of yourself? Are you happy? <laughs> <laughs> what did you call him, Sassy Alfred? Sassy That's Alfred. That's the best Alfred, yeah. Yeah. I imagine that that Scarecrow conversation was something like, uh, so full this afternoon, Mr. Bruce, uh, tea and crumpets. You know, Alfred, I was thinking more scones and a side of adrenaline. Yes, uh, Mr. Bruce. Very well, sir. <laughs> He's a good one to have at Bruce's back. I, I do believe he is very indispensable. Yes. So we get, yeah, we talked about our first mention of the Joker. Bruce is off dealing with him. While he is out and Alfred has... A little free time to document on a past case. And this one was of the body of a man in his early 50s found on the southern shore of Gotham Bay. The medical examiner could not determine if the man's death was the result of suicide, accident, or foul play. So Batman obtained full access to the autopsy report and samples from the body. How he got this, I don't know, but he's Batman, so... That's how. (laughs) That's the only answer we need. So he and uh, Alfred couldn't find any flaws in the medical examiner's report. But Bruce, of course, does find a little something. And we get into some icky stuff here. Uh, The corpse had an advanced degree of adiposere, which is when body fat is transformed into a waxy, grayish substance, often described as soap-like. Ew. Alfred said it is unclean and not like soap, but there you have it. 
uh, when environmental conditions are known, this can help kind of narrow down an approximate date of death. Okay, this is one that I learned from Patricia Cornwell. Oh. From her novel, The Body Farm. And in that, uh, she tells of the more or less real location where they do a lot of this testing, you know, leaving yeah. corpses out in different conditions and noticing the changes every day and by the hour, that sort of thing. So you can build, you know, this this database. Yeah. Got to be done if they want that information. I'm not sure if I would love that job or hate that job. Hmm. I would go back and forth. It's very similar to library work. Yeah. Never know, like, when I'm going to find a corpse just moldering in the stacks. <laughs> <laughs> the narrowing down the time of death, that it's only possible if the corpse has been in the same location. If the body is moved, then all bets are off. Alfred writes, This body was found in water, and we learned that prolonged immersion in water, whether fresh or saline, slows the body's normal decomposition while simultaneously speeding the creation of Adipocir, Alfred writes, presents a rather sticky wicket right off the bat. That's a very British line there. <laughs> now, I don't know if you mentioned this. I mean, I was paying very, very close attention. But if you did not mention the icon, oh, for yeah. this case file, it is Corpse Found in Water. Yes, Corpse Found in Water. I don't know much about corpses in water, other than that they seem like they'd get bloaty and gross, and and this one does get kind of gross. And I wonder if the bloating is partly from this change in decomposition, that it slows down one but speeds up this adipocere. So, don't know. So still, the medical examiner had been able to match the man's approximate date of death by using the date of missing persons, and only two of which were possible. Checking these two dental records, the medical examiner was able to identify the, de the deceased as a businessman who had failed to return from a fishing trip. The ME concluded that the body had been immersed in water since the date he went missing. Bruce agreed with this assessment, but it still didn't clear up if this was a case of drowning or dumping. So we get into lung tissue. It revealed the presence of these tiny algae-like organisms... But again, that could be either he inhaled the water in or the water entered his lungs after when he was already dead. So that really didn't help a whole lot. Mm -hmm. But from here, Bruce uses acid to dissolve a sample of the man's heart, though apparently any internal organ would have sufficed. And he examines them microscopically, and he finds these algae-like organisms there as well. Mm -hmm. And this tells them then that when the man was in water, the body's autonomous functions were still in operation. So when he inhaled this water, his blood was still flowing and it carried these organisms throughout his body. That still doesn't narrow down accident, suicide or murder, but it exactly. does give us some some information. Yeah, he was alive when he went into the water. And this is like a really smart chapter like i was just really impressed with some of this it's, it's probably 40 some minutes too late to mention this but you know you probably don't want to be listening to this while you're eating lunch i'm just <laughs> throwing out that out i know it's a little late to mention that now yeah yeah, maybe, yeah i might um, 
might put a little warning on there. Like, don't be eating, <laughs> you know, hot dogs that have been boiled in water. Well, gross stuff coming. Yes. <laughs> so, again, we he Bruce Bruce realizes that murder would be difficult or impossible to prove. So he moves on with the theory that it had either been accidental drowning or suicide. And I'm not really sure why he dismisses that, even though it's hard to prove because he does eventually come back to it later. So I'm, we'll, we'll leave that. Um, but basically, Alfred writes that Bruce is simply unwilling to write off any death as innocent unless until the slightest chance of foul play has been conclusively eliminated. Which is very valiant, but man, if Bruce were an M.E., he would have a backlog Mr. Wayne, this person died in a 20-car pileup. That wasn't murder. (laughs) So, on to more traditional detective work. Leaving the body behind for a bit, Bruce learns that the man's business partner stood to gain from the premature death in two ways. As primary insurance beneficiary, which uh, doesn't really get into why he was listed as the primary beneficiary, but maybe they were good friends, I don't know and by inheriting full ownership of the previously shared business. It had been the partner who filed the missing persons report. Mm. So Batman requests Gordon to put two of his detectives on this case. We'll assume Bullock and Montoya. (laughs) The man was questioned, this business partner was questioned, and he had no alibi about the day of the fatal fishing outing. He claimed to have spent his entire day relaxing alone at home, but, you know, describes a lot of people's days. But the suspect now has motive and possible opportunity. Mm-hmm. With this info, Bruce goes back to the lab, and it was time to look at, and this is where I was really impressed, the ratio of the algae-like organisms which had been absorbed into the bloodstream compared to that which were still hanging out in the lungs. Apparently the normal ratio of this is known. However, the ratio for this victim's numbers had a pronounced discrepancy, indicating that he had drowned while unconscious and barely breathing. It's like, that's very clever. Okay, yep. It's very clever. But that still means he could have fallen and hit his head Mm -hmm. and then fallen in the water. Yeah, so we we keep getting little pieces. Or been the victim of murder. Right. We, We keep getting little pieces of information and it's clearing it up a little bit, but there's still all these possibilities. Well, one of the things I like about this section is he mentions more than once. So this one became more likely and this other cause became more likely. It's like he's sort of continually ranking possible causes. But to me, that shows there's sort of an open mindedness. He's not locked. He's not locked into one solution Mm -hmm. and driving to prove that the probability of each of these options, you know, he's, he's, he's willing to, for those to be constantly changing in his mind. So mm-hmm. I think he's, you know, the most probable solution now might not be the most probable solution after the next test. And exactly. The next, the next bit of evidence. I think that's a valuable skill in a, in a investigator of any kind that, that open-mindedness. Yeah. Do you think he would be annoyed at all if it ended up being like an innocent drowning? Come on, man. <laughs> I thought I was onto something. Wasted all this time. Now my new mission is to eliminate all household accidents. <laughs> and like you mentioned, Professor, he could have simply passed out and fallen into the water. Could have been this, could have been that. 
So uh, toxicology results were negative for alcohol, drugs, or poison. The Emmy's autopsy had also ruled out heart attack. So drowning was the murder's final stage, but not its beginning. The Emmy had found no evidence of blunt force trauma, nor any other wounds. Bruce also could not find wounds other than those caused by, and this is where it's starting to get gross, hungry fish after the man's death. Ew. Because I imagine a body f- sitting in seawater is not going to be pretty for very long. Mm-hmm. And it gets a little more detailed with that. Um, so he wasn't shot, stabbed, beaten, or poisoned. Absence of ligature marks on the neck or bruising of the trachea ruled out strangulation. But where much of the, the fish had been feeding was upon the neck. So it wasn't really easy to see for sure if there was no wound there. Mm-hmm. And isn't that convenient? And in fact, uh, Alfred even writes, like, do fish only eat bruised flesh? Like, what is this? <laughs> I don't want to skip to the end you know, for the spoilers, but I think getting the arrest warrant for the individual fish, mm-hmm. that was genius. I mean, I think that that was impressive. Yeah. And how they went after them. Oh, yeah. Genius. Yeah. Bullock in that scuba That's suit. Skin diving. It was not. It was it was not good. Not good. Yeah. Yeah. so while strangulation was not likely suffocation was still a possibility but there's a well-known phenomenon induced by suffocation and strangulation which is petechiae ruptures of tiny blood vessels in and around the eyes again this was hard to find because of the uh, marine animals that had been eating at the corpse ill the phrase avid appetites yeah. used here, which is, uh, okay. Yeah, so the, the neck's been eaten up. The eye area isn't present enough anymore to see if there's any petechiae. Yeah, just not a good-looking corpse at all. Uh, so Alfred's ready to give up at this point. But Bruce relays a message through Gordon to give to the medical examiner. And it says, look to the mouth, and the dead man will tell his tale. Okay, Enigma. Can't you just can't you just say it straight out and not make it a, a riddle? I got that in a fortune cookie once. Now it all makes sense. <laughs> well, with this hint, uh, the ME was easily able to find ruptured blood vessels where the fish could not reach. And this was in the mouth. And the hard palate does not have much in the way of fat. And therefore, the adipocere did not hide the petechiae. And that was another thing that held the... That hid some of the injury was the adipocere. So yeah, that's that's pretty smart. I would have guessed that the medical examiner. I think it's it would probably be fairly standard procedure to check in the mouth, but we'll 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 let Bruce have this win. <laughs> so I I didn't know petechiae could show up in the mouth as well, but you know <laughs> makes sense. So with this, Gordon's team checked out boat rental establishments and found the boat rented. With the dead man's credit card, fingerprints lifted from the boat revealed seven matching from the dead man, but more than a dozen matching from the business partner. Arrest and interrogation lead to a full confession by this amateur criminal, and he would have gotten away with it too, if not for that pesky adipocere and petechiae. <laughs> Case closed. So all the technology, helpful as it was, the final bit of evidence was a good old-fashioned police work. Yeah. 
and fingerprints and the credit card receipt. And interesting. Which they wouldn't have gotten to if Bruce right. wasn't like mm-hmm. really hounding this. And right. Good job, Batman. You're good yeah. at this. He is. He should do this for a living. Though, <laughs> uh, so I would imagine a city like Gotham, I would guess there's at least one or two corpses that pop up a day, every few days. Does he do this for every corpse? Because again, that would that would take up a lot of time. But maybe he just leaves most of it to forensics, to the GCPD. Mm-hmm. He lets them do their job. And he was having a slow week. And he happened to see this. And he's like, you know what? I've already done my crossword puzzles. I've already done Wordle. I got this. I got this. <laughs> yeah. So he was just bored and uh, found a criminal. <laughs> already done his Wordle. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, a good trio of, of bits there. Um, I feel like the last two... S- Episodes we did were kind of more along the lines of kind of like the technology, the tech, technical side of forensics. But if we're getting into Joker stuff, I wonder if we'll get something similar to that mm-hmm. Scarecrow chapter where there'll, there'll be some forensics, but also some right. like good mm-hmm. meaty story in there as well. Right. Because this one had that. It just was with a character in a situation we didn't know. Right. Which it was still very interesting and a very smart chapter, I thought. Like, you know, I thought, okay, cool. They're finding these organisms in the bloodstream. So he was alive. Oh, now you can actually measure the difference in how many are in the lungs and how many are in the bloodstream to see if the man drew a breath deep enough that he was awake or not. So that was pretty interesting. So let me look here and see what our next few chapters are. Um, Next is the, is the, the Joker one. Ooh, the Joker and the Profiler. Mm-hmm. That's 10, 10 or 12 pages. Then the Telltale Tattoo mm-hmm. is a pretty short one, too. But the one after that's like 30-some pages. Okay, so let's do so the I next think probably two. probably do the next two, yeah. Especially yeah. if there's a Joker in there that might be. Yeah. That will bring up some things to, to, to chat about. So do the Joker and the, the Profiler. Telltale I think the telltale tattoo one goes back to gunpowder burns and that's the thing. So a little revisitation. Looks like we're about what little more, about a third of the way through the book. Yeah. I mean, you know, yep. I am still very much enjoying this book. (laughs) The reviews are in that first episode. Awesome. (laughs) Uh, Even though I lost my entire side. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, even, even though I lost my my entire side, unfortunately, but I, I tried to uh, tried to reenact as much as I could. It's all I, those rest in peace theaters. You've been preparing for this for years <laughs> for this eventuality. Yes, but that is now, 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 Lane, you're a real podcaster now. Ooh, you've had to re-record half a half of an episode because you've lost audio. That is. I'm in the big leagues now. Check that off your accomplishments list. Nice. Nice. Yeah, like I said, uh, I'm not saying that you are the cause of technical issues, but that first one, I lost everything. The second one, I think we had some technical issues. So I'm just using the least common denominator, and that's you. I am a very uncommon denominator. I've been called that a lot, mostly the uncommon part. 
it's a good thing. All right. So anything else to add for for this episode? Not at all. All right. Well, thank you again for joining me today, Professor Allen. Thank you for listening to Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose. If you'd like to send me a message, comments, questions, you can reach me on Twitter at BatmanBooks underscore DKP or on Gmail at DarkNightPros at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider leaving a rating or review. Until next time, Gothamites, happy reading. Batman is copyrighted to DC Comics and was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. <laughs>